0: Have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, if you want to follow along with the digital sermon card or you version, you're able to do that as well. And it'll be on the screen behind you, the QR code, if you want to take a picture. I would imagine that today's message is going to evoke quite a bit of response. So just a reminder to you, there in the seat back in front of you is a card. It says Sunday QA. And you're able to take that if you will. And uh, you have any questions as we move through the message today, you can. Write those questions there. You can turn that in at the uh, Next Steps table out in the lobby, or you could do it at the, the Welcome Team uh, tent out in the, the parking lot as well. Um, and we have the option digitally for you as well. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. I'm going to read uh, nine verses in our hearing. Luke chapter 14, begin with me in verse 25. Now, great crowds were traveling with him, so he, Jesus, turned to them and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, His own father and mother hate his own wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, if he does not even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete the tower. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation, cannot finish it, the onlookers will begin to ridicule that man and say this man started to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's going or if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not surrender or renounce all his possessions cannot be My disciple. That, my friends, might be the toughest text in the 66 books that sit in our lap. That's a tough text. That's a challenging word. I've entitled today's message Is He Worth Following? Jesus cuts away images, shame, stigmas, and struggles. Is He Worth Following? Now, when Jesus says this in Luke fourteen, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I imagine Jesus's PR firm is scrambling after that talk he gave. Those that are responsible for the image management of Jesus are scrambling. They are in consternation. They are bewildered, especially because it's yet one more instance of a theme that he's been repeating, and. Earlier, if you don't know this, Luke chapter 9, we're in 14. Luke chapter 9, a man says, Hey, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But first, let me first go back and bury my father. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead. Again, you can hear Jesus' PR firm going, Whoa. They're gasping for air. They're trying to find oxygen. Then a few chapters later, Luke chapter 12. So that was 9, now we're in 12. He says, hey, do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? I know you sing that at Christmas time. I didn't come to bring peace, he said. No, he said, I've come wielding a sword. And he said, I've come to bring division. And this is what our Lord said. I've come to bring a sword and separate families. I want to separate families. I want to divide households three against two, two against three. And then today, you get to Luke 14, and he makes the comment, if you want to follow me, you must hate your father and mother, you must hate your wife and children, you must hate your brothers and sisters, and you must surrender all of your own possessions. Now church, let's jump in for a few moments. Part of the problem with the way we handle texts like this is that we settle for what I'm going to call today the plain sense of the text. What I mean by the plain sense is the reading that we get without any effort on our part. The reading and interpretation that hits us without actually drudging through the text. Now, I would propose to all of us who grew up in evangelicalism, most of us who grew up in evangelical Protestant churches, we were taught that's how you're supposed to read the Bible. That whatever the Bible says plainly is what God is saying. Every time I click on Facebook, somebody else says another comment of the same sentiment. No, the Bible is what the Bible is, right? And the Bible says what the Bible says. But the fact is, a plain reading is a reading that has no salt. A plain reading of the Bible is the reading you have. It's not the word God is speaking to you. A plain reading of the text is the text that I interpret, not what God wants to say. Now, this might shock you, but let it shock. I'm not shocking just for shock's sake. I'm just trying to get us around the reality of the text. The plain reading, that is the seemingly obvious reading that requires no effort on our part, I would propose, is always wrong. Because that's what I am making of the text, not what the Lord is saying in the text. That when God speaks, it's salty. And that when God speaks, it's surprising. And when God speaks, it calls for a response from me. So when God speaks, it'll catch me off guard. This is how I know God's speaking. When God speaks, it will challenge me. When God speaks, it won't me be interpreting the text based on my own fears. It will cut through all of that and surprise me, catch me off guard. It will call me to something that I would not know was even able or need to even see was needed out of my life. So the plain reading is the reading that I come to without faith. The plain reading of the text is the reading that I come to without the Spirit of the Lord. But the word the Lord is speaking is always a salty word. The word the Lord speaks, it always moves us. Now, everything I say today, I want you to hear in that context. All the rest that I'm going to communicate to you has to be heard through those lens. And what I share today, whatever it is that Jesus is saying about the dead bearing the dead... Whatever it is that Jesus is saying about, I've come to not bring peace, but to bring division and divide households and divide two against three and three against two. And whatever it is that Jesus is saying about hating your father and mother, brothers and sisters, wife and kids, I want to tell you, it is not what we are afraid it is. It's something hopeful. This is a word because it's out of the mouth of Jesus that if we hear it rightly, his word and not what we want to hear. And and, and and we hear His word and not what we're afraid of. Not our own words spoken from our own fear. When we hear it as His word, it will orient us to life and it will orient us to abundant life. So my question is, how do we hear it that way? How do you hear Jesus say to you, hate your father and mother and hear it in a way that orients life? Well, I think we got to make sense of the text. I want to give you two analogies. One is, is the antidote, catch this, the antidote to these kinds of, and I'm going to say it this way, poisonous text is always nearby. What do you mean, Craig? When we come across a text in the Scripture that seems toxic, and it seems very challenging, or it seems very difficult, rather than flee from it, which is what we normally do, we pretend that those words aren't there, and we go to other words we like of Jesus, rather than flee from it, I think we have to recognize that the antidote to the passage is close. In this case of Luke 14, I believe that the antidote is in the other text around it. So in just a moment, we're going to look at a New Testament epistle called Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon. But this reminds me of something Origen said. Now, I'm going to bring up Origen many times today. Origen was an early church father. In fact, many people even in today's world still don't call him a church father, but he was a church father in Alexandria in the 400s. He was a bit of provocateur in his own time. He challenged the church, challenged church tradition, uh, he was held in great suspicion years after his death. But I would tell you that every, uh, or every decade of church history, the, 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 a generation has to come to the forefront that they rediscover Origen and his contribution to the church, and it speaks beautiful words. Origen said he learned this from a rabbi. I think it's beautiful. I think it'll help you so much in your Bible study. He said, Scripture is like a big house filled with all kinds of locked rooms. The whole Bible is this one big house with locked rooms, and he says there is a key outside every single locked door, but the key outside the door doesn't go towards the door that it's nearest. It goes to some other door somewhere in the house, so that in order to get into the locked passage called Luke 14, how do we understand Jesus' words of hating father and mother? You have to find the key somewhere else in the house. Which means you're going to have to, unless you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to try a lot of the keys and they won't work. Which means you're going to be frustrated a little bit in your Bible study. Which means you're going to work on key after key and it's not going to unlock the meaning of the passage. And because of that, you're going to now get a feel for the whole house because you've got to walk every hall and pick up every key. So at the end of the day, what happens is now you're learning to interpret the Bible because you realize and remember which key works for which door. Which key opens which locked reality? So I want you to think about that analogy as we attempt to unlock the locked door of Luke 14. Unless you hate your father and mother, unless you hate your brother and sister, and let me just add this right here, by the way, let me just throw this in there. If that sounds like something you're happy with and ready to do, that's not a good thing, okay? That's not the saltiness I'm talking about, okay? That's not the saltiness that Jesus is mentioning here, all right? So how do we get inside this text? You must give up all your possessions was one thing for sure. You ready? Jesus does not mean that he wants to be a priority in your life. God is not wanting to be the most important thing in your life by relegating everything else to secondary status. God is not the top of a priority list. God is at the heart of everything and everyone in your priority list. Listen to me. I don't love God And then if there's anything left over, love my wife and kids. And then if anything left over after that, love my neighbors. It is precisely as I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength that I love my neighbor as myself. Listen, it is in loving my neighbor as myself that I fulfill that love of God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So watch this. God is not at the top of the priority list. He is first in every one of those loves. So he is first in how I love my wife. He's not first and then, and if I have any left over, love my wife. He's first in how I love my wife. He's first in how I love my kids. He's first in how I love my neighbors. He's first in how I love the people around me. So, 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 so he is first in those moments. And, and so when we see that and understand that, we realize that's not the key that unlocks Luke 14. That key doesn't work. So I want to go to another key. This is in Philemon. Now, imagine many of you have not heard a message preached out of the book of Philemon. Philemon is a small letter from the Apostle Paul written to Philemon. And the speculation for all of church history, I'm going to tell you, all church history has believed that Philemon is a friend of Paul and he has a slave named Onesimus. He owns a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus escapes the plantation, escapes his master Philemon, and having escaped, he stole something from his master. This man who was a slave, Onesimus, somehow makes his way to Paul. We don't know how he got there. He gets to Paul, and Paul brings about a change in Onesimus' life, and Onesimus becomes a believer. He becomes a person who turns his heart to the Lord. And now Paul is sending him back to his master, Philemon, to restore that relationship. But of course, this text has a checkered history in church uh, history because it's not entirely clear what Paul is saying. Commentators disagree. He's saying one of two things. Hey, um, Philemon, here is your slave back, and here's the money he took from you, and oh, by the way, he's your brother in Christ. Or he's saying, this man is no longer your slave, he's your brother in Christ, and you must see him as such. Now, I think the key to our text in Luke 14, I'm, I can't get to the key to Philemon, I can't even start that today. We're not, I'm not talking about the key to that text. I'm talking about using the key of Philemon to open our doors our Luke 14 door. And I think it works perfectly. You say, why? Watch this. Philemon verse 1 and 2. Notice how Paul the Apostle starts this. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Ophia, our sister, that's his wife, uh, Philemon's wife, to Archippus and our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. That's how he opens. Leave that up there for a moment. Now, if you study Paul, you realize this is a remarkable opening because we don't have one letter, any speech in antiquity ever where Paul uses this language. He never opens a letter saying, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He always says, slave, bondservant, or apostle. No other time in the history of Paul's language does he open a letter saying, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. Listen again to how he describes the relationships of anyone around him. He says, Timothy, our brother, Philemon, our dear friend, co worker, Ophia, our sister, Archis, our fellow soldier, to the church that meets in your home. He describes them all as equals. Now listen to me. Here's the first key to open our text in Luke 14. We're going to open Luke 14 by interpreting Philemon. Are you ready? The first key to our door is this. At one point in Paul's life, he would have been seeking out these very people to arrest them and kill them. The very people that he addresses right here would be people that he is trying to destroy. You remember he holds the cloaks of Stephen at the first Christian martyr. He's holding the cloaks of the first Christian martyr. They needed, in Paul's mind... They needed to be captured and brought to justice. But now because he has been captured by Jesus, notice this, he's now been captured, he is the prisoner, and they are all his equals. So instead of imprisoning them by considering himself their superior, he's been now captured by Jesus, and therefore he is free to see them as equals in his life. So here's the clue to Luke 14. Whenever Jesus does something that seems binding, it's actually freeing. Whenever Jesus does anything in Scripture that looks like it's binding someone, it's actually liberating someone. Whenever Jesus does something that looks like a curse, it's actually a blessing. Whatever that Jesus does that seems to be against you is actually for you. When Jesus is trying to break the darkness around you, He overshadows you with the darkness of God. When Jesus wants to break the curse of sin on you, He curses the curse on you. When Jesus wants to set you free from violence, He destroys the violence. Let me use the language of Revelation. He is the destroyer of the destroyers of the earth. So what is Paul saying here? Watch this. Jesus has captured me, therefore I'm free. He's bound me, so now I'm liberated. Jesus has claimed me as his own, therefore I see you all as equals. And then he says to Philemon something just, just so phenomenal. He says, you should take Onesimus back, friend. And then he gives him this word. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. Do not miss this. For perhaps, Philemon, this is why your slave Onesimus was separated for you from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently no longer as a slave but more than a slave as a dearly loved brother he's a special what's this so to me but how much more to you is he a brother both in the flesh and in the lord so he's been separated from you for a while so you can have him back forever not as a slave but as a brother both in the Lord and in the flesh. So what you see, church, is a separation. The sword that Jesus wields, Luke chapter 12, it separates in order to restore. Folks, I said this a couple sermons ago, don't expect you to remember it completely, but I told you, this is the difference between torture and surgery. The difference between torture and surgery is when you go on the operating table at Kennestone Hospital, you might not be able to tell the difference between torture and surgery when you're on the table. But once you are well and you look back and recognize what I thought was actually torture was in fact salvation. What I thought was actually killing me was actually saving me. Was in fact God cutting away what needed to be cut away. So in Luke, watch this, we are told we must hate our father and mother. We're told we must hate our wife and kids, our brothers and sisters. We need to hear that not as torture. We need to hear that as surgery. There is a separation happening when you say yes to Jesus. And it's a separation that is a not a cur- but a, a healing separation from the great physician. Watch this. It is the separation that for a little while so we can be given back to us what becomes forever. And this is only what Jesus can promise us. Listen to me. Look at me. He can separate you from other people in such a way that when you are restored to them, you are restored to them in health. Only Jesus can do this. You are restored in fullness. So watch this. All... That is toxic in your relationship with other people right now. Jesus can cut away and he's the only one that can separate everything that's cancerous from everything that is in you that is whole. And that, you call it, what, it will, what you will, that is the work of salvation. Now watch this. I've given you two keys. Now let's go back to Luke 14. Put them in the hole and see if they work. What does Jesus say about hating father and mother? Dividing three against two, two against three, the dead bearing the dead. In your Bible, you have a little heading above Luke 9, above Luke 12, and Luke 14. In all three of those texts, it's going to say something right above it, the cost of discipleship. All of your little headings. Most of us know that phrase, the cost of discipleship, by the famous book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's my favorite book of all time, but it's very badly titled. Did you know Bonhoeffer did not give it the title, the cost of discipleship? He wrote it in German. It just says discipleship. I think it actually hurts us that we, we changed the name. That's not what he titled it. He just called it discipleship. Now, when he, Bonhoeffer, writes the book, he talks about cheap grace. So, what we start doing is we start thinking Jesus is talking about costly grace here. So, the way we, the plain reading of the text, it sounds like Jesus is saying, This is what it's going to cost you to follow me. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, church. You're going to have to put the thinking cap on. Do you really think Jesus' words to you are this? Yes, you can follow me, but I'm a little pricey. Follow me. Do you really think Jesus' words to us are, you can have and get the the, the grace for a gift of all your possessions. We know that's not what he means because Peter had a mother-in-law, which means Peter was married, which means Peter was following Jesus without being separated from his wife. We know the plain sense of the text is not correct. We know this also because the people that surrounded Jesus and supported his ministry had all kinds of money to support his ministry. So he can't be the plain sense of renouncing all your possessions. So this text isn't plainly what it means to say. What Jesus Jesus is saying. Let me just cut to the chase. Is not this is what it will cost you to follow me. This is what Jesus is saying. As you follow me, I am going to clear away for you all of the bad relations that are keeping you from being who you are called to be and living the abundant life you're called to live. This is not a threat, folks. This is a promise for Jesus. This is not a price tag. This is not, this is the cost of following me. This is an assurance that God is saying nothing that is currently destroying you will be left to destroy you when you follow me. Listen, Jesus is saying, there is nothing left in your life, listen to me, that Jesus is ever going to tell you, just accept it the way it is. He is going to do surgery on you. He is going to take away from you all bad relations. And everything that's eating away at you and me, he's going to cut away as the cancer that it is. That's the promise for us. We're going to have separations in our lives. But all of those separations are for a greater, full, and complete, and final reconciliation. So Origen, in his sermons on Luke, this is what Origen says. He draws attention to that passage, let the dead bury their own dead. And he says, clearly Jesus cannot mean this man has no right to bury his father. Right at the heart of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. Jesus is not saying, oh, I've thought better about it. Let me change my mind. Dishonor your father. That's not what the, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not saying don't don't honor your father. So so that's the plain sense. That's the plain sense. Don't Oh no, this is you can't worry about your father, you got to worry about me. No, no, he's not suddenly changing his mind. Origin says, "Oh, you better be ready." When Jesus says, "Let the dead bury the dead." He says this man has an imagined relationship to his father that he cannot reconcile with following Jesus. So in his heart, he sees himself as needing to go settle everything between him and his dad before he can actually take up the work of following Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is you do not have to settle all of that before you follow me. Come with me and I'll help you settle it all don't go and do something before you follow i he's not telling him to disobey his father he's not telling him to, to to dishonor his father he's telling him i'm going to cut away your perceived relationship to your father you start following me we'll settle those easy those and, and so origin says this i give you the quote those who follow jesus become their own graves and their own monuments Because all that stuff in our life that is unresolved, Jesus is putting to death. He's cutting away. He's clearing away so that we're moving into greater, deeper, and wider health and sharing in the very health that is God's own life. Church, this is good news. So let the dead bury the dead. Does not mean forget about your dad, worry about me. No, no, no. It means stop trying to fix those things that are out of your power to fix. Stop trying to fix your family members." you can't change your family members you can't change their heart follow me and let me do the work that only I can do let me do the work I can only do in your life, let me do the work that only I can do in their life, I'm telling some good news to some spouses in here who got got spouses that are not following Jesus stop trying to be savior to them let me do what only I can do not hate your father and mother in the plain sense, but be ready to be broken free of what you imagine your relationship to them is okay okay so we're going to go into some really deep water for a moment okay now i'm not a psychologist nor am i the son of a psychologist but i love psychology and i've read a lot of psychology so i borrow for a moment from one of the greatest american philosophers his name is lewis or william james and william james has this wonderful sentence amazing sentence that that i think is almost right he says when two people meet together there are actually six people present. So Pastor Chad and I go get coffee one day. It's not just the two of us. There is me as I imagine myself to be. There's me as Pastor Chad imagines me to be. And there's me as I actually am. And the same is for Pastor Chad. He, there's him as he imagines himself to be. Me as I imagine him to be. And who Pastor Chad is actually is. Six people. I think, he's, I think he's wrong. I think there's eight people. He's missing two people. That is who? That is me as I imagine he imagines me to be. Right? So so watch this. I'm not just sitting there and thinking about myself and thinking about him. I'm thinking about what he's thinking about me and what I'm thinking about him in every human encounter. Every human encounter you have, there's no less than six, maybe eight people present. That means every human engagement is a hall of mirrors. You're never just there with somebody. Let me say something. In fact, when you are, you can feel the shock of it. If you think back over your life, the times that have been distinguished from others, it's probably the one or two or three times in your whole life where six people weren't present, but only two people were there. And it's so foreign to us, it shocks us. When just I am there and just they are there, it stands out from everything else. Why? Because most of the time we're seeing ourselves in dozens of mirrors all around us and only Jesus, only Jesus. Only Jesus can say, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's not who you are. Nope, you shouldn't have ever believed that about yourself. You should have never heard that from another person. Now, this is the real you. The mark of salvation is God saying, that's a lie, don't believe it. That's not who you are to your mom. That's not who you are to your dad. That's not who you are to your spouse. That's not, nope, you should have never believed that. You should have never thought about that. This is something you should have never believed. Now, here is you. And that's not the person you think you're seeing. Those accusations you're throwing at them when you meet at coffee, you're looking at an image of them. You're looking at them as you imagine them to be or as you fear that they are, not as that they actually are. So what we have to do to follow Jesus is what? We have to bury the dead images in our life. Let God shatter all of those images and mirrors so we can finally stand face to face with another human. So when he says, I've come to divide two against three and three against two, I've come to bring division, not peace, I'm... He's saying, I'm clearing away all the illusions. Y'all, it is astonishing how much negative talk we carry around in our heads about who we are and about who others are. You want to know why America is drowning in anxiety? Can I tell you just from a moment? We drown in anxiety because we're dealing with projections, illusions, and fantasies to the nth degree in every interaction we have. So watch this. I've talked to you before about how God gives you imagination so you can imagine reconciliation. But here's the problem. Are you ready? When you are eaten up with fear, your imagination starts to work against you. When you're eaten up with fear, the imagination God gave you to imagine a future starts working against you. So watch this. You start to imagine that things are worse than they actually are. That you are worse than you actually are. And under those conditions, in the darkness and confusion that the enemy stirs in our lives, by showing us these mirror images, the only thing that's going to bring healing and peace is the clarity of the word of the Lord that shatters all those false images, cuts away all of that, and lets the dead bury the dead, so we can actually go into the future as the people God called us to be. Now on December 31st, 2016, I suffered a back injury. I'll show you a picture. I was with my son in Tennessee, and he killed a deer, and it fell off of a cliff, went off the bottom of a cliff. And at the bottom of that cliff, we got there and couldn't find it till the next day, and I began to try to, at about a 80-degree steep hill, tried to start pulling it and messed up and injured my back. When I injured my back, a couple of days had passed. It started getting worse and worse. And obviously, I got to a place where I could not stand. There was no more sitting. And I had to cancel a wedding. And that Sunday, I was supposed to preach and stayed at home, <clears throat> started taking some medication. i would never taken narcotics in my life. Long story short, it got so bad that uh, I tried to get some help with some decompression. And it went into major back spasms and started pulling my my vertebrae out of place. And When I did, I was screaming bloody murder. My wife called 911. It was in January now at this point in 2018, and the ambulance shows up, fire truck. They couldn't get up my heel because of the ice, and so they got there, and because literally I was in so much pain, they gave me Verset, which is really not a pain medication. It's an amnesia drug, so you still have the pain. You just can't remember the pain after you're done with the pain. That's what amnesia is. And so they gave me Verset, try to calm me down, and they put me in the hospital. And I go into the hospital for seven days. I'll show you the next image. I'm there for seven days. And um, in that seven days, uh, I was given just Valium 24-7. So I have no recollection of those seven days. I don't think that I should have deserved to get Valium for seven days, but that's what happened. And a person who's never been on any kind of narcotics of such, uh, after those seven days... I was then given hydrocodone and got out of the hospital, and um, it was about 48 hours, and my world shattered. Um, Up to this point in my life, I'd never really dealt with uh, anything that was debilitating as it relates to mental stability, nothing that at least would not enable you to live life, and I went into a spiral. And uh, in that process, thank God, uh, it was only about 35 days, but because I was coming and I couldn't, you know, been down to tie my shoes for a few months, and um, of course I was not sleeping. I'd been like four or five days straight with zero sleep, just staring at the ceiling. Um, at this point, I started uh, opening my mind, my heart to the reality of how afraid I should be of mental instability, mental darkness. And uh, there were some good moments from that. I'll show you the next picture. One night, uh, my my son was there, and my mom, uh, my parents had to help and assist my family a lot uh, during that time frame. And so my mom had some amazing moments, uh, presence of the Lord in my room, just trying to pray for me to get some kind of stability, my head to stop shaking, the dizziness to stop the spells, the anxiety. And so we had some beautiful moments. But I'll tell you, about day 32, it slowly started lifting, and I lived the rest of 2018 fairly normal. Fairly normal. Now it made a significant impact and impression in my life. I had to get on medication in that time frame. I then got off that medication about six months later. And was doing really good all the way to about December. In December, it struck again. The weirdest of time, it was finishing up Christmas Eve gathering and kicked in and became a terrible Christmas Eve for me as I was trying to put on the front for my family, but that lasted for about another twenty-eight days. We got into January. Many of you Uh, This season did not know all that I was experiencing. Got into January and thank God I had this confidence that it lifted once, it's going to lift again. And it did. So I go from about January 28th all the way until September 24th. September September 24th, my wife and I, we take the kids to Sky Zone in Kennesaw, Georgia. we just gotten back from a planning retreat. We walk out of Sky Zone. And when we walk out of Sky Zone, dark clouds come crashing, billowing in on my life and they don't live in that time for about a little over six months. I did not know that at the time. I'd have never made it. The Lord would have clearly told me I was going to have to do this for six months. But I remember it settling in and I can't in some sense go into all the details. I want to give you a reality. There was one prophetic word where that was like an intertestamental period for me because the word of the Lord was rare. And I was doing everything I knew to do spiritually. But I got a prophetic word. And the prophetic word was, you're going into your future, Craig, not your past. You're going as a father, not a son. And the things that are over your head will be under your feet. Well, when I heard that prophetic word, it initiated, it initiated, didn't complete it, but initiated the process of breaking the hall of mirrors and images that I had in my head. Why? Because, listen, I was now afraid of mental instability. And for me, I'm going to tell you, I had to be set free from my fear of losing my cognitive abilities. It's my deepest fear deepest fear of life. I had to be set free from the fear of losing that. And so <clears throat> we're now two months into this. Well, actually, a few weeks. Let me back up. I got hospitalized again. I was supposed to run a marathon, half marathon, got hospitalized for appendicitis. It just exacerbated the problem, and as it exacerbated the problem, uh, I remember going into the new year. It got really, really bad. As it got into the new year, I started incrementing my days in like five-minute moments, segments. If I could make it five more moments, I'd make it. If I could do it five more minutes, I'd make it. If I could do it another five minutes, I'd make it. My wife was trying to do everything possible. Pastor Chad was trying to do everything possible to give me help, therapy, doctors. Unfortunately, I'll just say from my experience, I got to doctors and because they didn't know the whole history, they got me on medication that is beyond antidepressants. Uh, They started prescribing me antipsychotic medication, uh, somebody who's not dealt with instability. Then that didn't work. My my parents didn't know what to do. They're trying, crying out for help. My... My wife told me just this week, she would go into um, it's impossible to talk about this. I'm I'm like I'm like naked in front of you. Like I'm I'm bearing you my whole. What's what's the what's the dearest to my life? And so she'd go into her um, closet and she would just beg the Lord hour after hour. Lord, you're gonna have to do something. You have to come through in some way. So because of the proliferation of medications, which I should not have been on, <clears throat> it made it way worse. And so I would get up in the morning, and one particular morning, the enemy kind of seized my imagination and showed me images of me, me murdering myself. It brought so much fear because I could not get it out of my mind. It brought so much fear that I just began prey to this sense of survival. So I go to therapy one day in Buford, and we're driving back, and um, my wife's is trying to make sense of it, and we're driving. We're coming down 20, going towards Cartersville. And we passed the National Cemetery, Georgia National Cemetery, and we're crossing Knoxbridge Road. And as we're crossing Knoxbridge Road, I'll never forget this in all of my life. Um, I wasn't doing anything purposely, but there was such a gaping hole in me that I just felt like going off the side of the road. And when I did, <clears throat> my wife reached over and grabbed the wheel, started praying incessantly, pulled over in the National Cemetery, got out. <clears throat> I got out of the car, and she came over and just began to pray in the Spirit. In her interpretation that I was going to kill us both. I get home. <clears throat> pastor Chad comes over. Assist. I can't stay still. I'm screaming. is <clears throat> Again, just exacerbated issues of darkness and the inability to see. And so I find myself in a hospital that night. And thankfully, because of what I was going through, I didn't have to go through all the normal. I went to the psych side of the hospital. And so here I'm a pastor leading God's people, declaring God's truth, asking and believing for five months for God to heal. And I find myself in a hospital bed and a lady comes forward that introduces me, gets me a medication that actually helped. <clears throat> but then over the next few weeks, we would have thought, man, it's going to get better and better and better. But we, what actually happened <clears throat> a few days later, when I get out of the hospital, <clears throat> I'm just weeping, crying, crying. And I said to my wife, I I don't know what's going on, but I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And my body was telling me that something was happening. Now, here's the thing. What was happening to me was, was about these medicines. But the ways in which my brain were being overmatched with medicine in my body, but even in the midst of the physical, I was still seeing mirrored images of myself. So what my body was telling me, my soul was here and something's wrong with you. See, see, I couldn't interpret what my body was telling me in that state. Listen, I'm not okay. That was true. I was not okay. I was not okay at all. You know what wasn't also true? Something was wrong with me. Do you hear the difference? I was not okay, but something was not wrong with me. A few weeks later, I finally got a prophetic word from someone else that came to me again that I was held, that God was enlarging my heart, that he was giving me a lined heart. I was still terrified. Some of that was natural because of what I'd gone through and then ceased to. I was terrified. So I was talking to Pastor Chad and others at that time. and They said, why don't you go through your house and just anoint every corner of your house and declare that this is safe space for you? Because I didn't feel safe at home. I know a lot of people in anxiety and said they feel safe. It's part of the reason why we had to sell our house. But I didn't feel safe there because of the memories and the challenges of that moment. It was not safe space for me. And so we took oil. I'll never forget. We grabbed oil, Meredith and I, and we started going to the four corners of our house. And we're just anointing the house. And I try to go to sleep. Sleep's not really the word, right? In those seasons. And and so I get up the next morning, just stand up and I walk downstairs and I try to do what I know to do and get before the Lord. And I remember finally, because I couldn't listen to worship music much during those months. That was a That stirred it in worse ways. I just had to read Scripture. Worship music was not my remedy. And as I was reading the Scripture, I heard the Lord say, Craig, your enemy is never as big as he wants you to fear he is. I have enlarged your heart. I have given you a lion's heart. And that image shattered. the the hall of mirrors shattered and suddenly I wasn't in a house of mirrors and suddenly I wasn't in a haunted house, which I'd been in for six months. But I was in the presence of the God who's always holding me. I want you to look at me, church. Your enemy is never as big as it wants you to fear that it is, no matter what your enemy is. Never. Your enemy doesn't have the power your enemy tries to convince you it has. There is one who is clearing all of that away, who's shattering all of those lies so you can walk in the health and abundance that's actually meant for you. Now let me tackle for a few moments this subject of mental health and mental illness. You can obviously know that's coming from a deeply personal place, but I want to speak to it in a way that's going to serve us well as a church. Why, Craig, talk about it? The reason is because the CDC, which is our nation's leading health service, now whether or not we believe that or not, it's up in the air, but tells us that it's the most common, anxiety is the most common and current health crisis in our nation. There's just been a tsunami of diagnosis that have taken place with people who are struggling. The Lord finally gave me release on Monday of this week to, to share this in the message. I've, I've not shared this for you all in, in three years. And when he did, I opened up my phone and I saw that Allison's husband, Twitch, who is Ellen DeGeneres' DJ, who has it all together with three kids, and we watch on Instagram and dance reels all the time. He he took his own life this week. Now, it's apples and oranges because we don't know if he knew Christ and knew the hope of salvation. We don't know any of those, but it just goes, goes to exacerbate and serve the problem, the reality that is at the forefront of American life. Listen, I sit with people regularly, and they're swimming against the waves of something that's going on inside, and I can tell you this. Too many people silently struggle. And I just think it's important for us, I don't know what your idea of church is, but I think it's important for us to say to anyone from any place in any condition, you can come and find the grace of Jesus Christ at our church. You can find grace. No topic is off, no situation is too dim. You can come here and you can open, open, openly struggle. Now the thing I want to tackle today, just for a few moments, I want to talk about the stigma, struggle, and shame of mental challenges. The stigma, struggle, and shame. There was a study done at the University of Auburn just recently where they did an experiment, watch this, to gauge if people were more or less compassionate towards someone based on what they knew about their health. So they brought people in, they put them in a waiting room, and they said it was actually going to be an experiment on learning new information. And then they put someone beside them that they looked like another subject, but the truth is they were an actor. So the actor would begin to chat up with the person about life, and the actor was in some way to work in the conversation that they had a mental illness. Some of those actors were told to disclose that their mental illness was tied to biochemistry and what they were as makeup, like it's a disease. Half of them were told to disclose that it was actually the result of childhood trauma. What they wanted to see is how Americans reacted based on what disclosure was. So after a few minutes and after the, this was done, the subjects and actors were brought into a room and the subjects were told to organize things in a certain pattern And then they were to teach the actor the same pattern, but here's what they were told. If the actor messes up, and the actor's the one with the mental illness, you can push this red button, and the red button will zap the person to correct them. Now, some of you are like, man, that sounds like a good idea with my spouse. That sounds like a great idea. So so they would go in and organize them, and here's what they found. It was really astounding that people who said the cause of their mental illness was biochemistry received more frequent and longer zaps than anybody else involved. And they concluded that Americans, their compassion fades for people because most people don't believe mental illness is actual disease. They don't believe mental health is an actual challenge, according to biochemistry. So so here's why I tell you that story. If that's happening in a place of higher education, the best and brightest, how much more are stigmas taking place in culture and the church when it comes to the topic of mental challenge? I actually think the stigmas around mental illnesses are one of the reasons that people never find healing. I think they exacerbate everything in the situation. I think stigmas for those that are suffering with a mental illness make it impossible for them to open up and ask for help. I think, it, I think, it, I think those stigmas make it really difficult for people who are related to those with mental illnesses to understand and help. I think stigmas keep churches that are called to be places of helping We don't know how to handle those situations. And I actually think this, that the only person that benefits from stigmas is our spiritual enemy because he uses them to what? To like lies, to cause us to live in shame and to disable ministries and to keep people who are suffering from the help that they actually need in life. So before we talk about symptoms, we got to talk about stigmas. And what I want to do just for a quick moment is I want to talk to you about three really important stigmas, and I want to give you three important truths. Okay. I believe it's just going to send us off in this journey, help us to actually be the church God wants us to be. More people struggle in Christmas time than they struggle in any other time of the year. So let's talk about the stigma. And by the way, if this happens to be your issue today, here's the first stigma. Number one, we misrepresent what mental illness is. In our culture, it's very common for us to take psychological terms and tie them into things that we're experiencing in a very casual way. It's damaging. So let's, let's, you know, some of us, I'm depressed, man, because my team lost last night. I'm so anxious because I got all this to do this week. I hope to get my to-do list done. I'm anxious. My pet is schizophrenic. Be careful. Sometimes my pet's good. Sometimes he's bad. The problem is, though, your team can lose and get destroyed, and you haven't even scratched the surface of depression. Like, that's a real condition when someone's biochemistry, regardless of why it happens, turns on them, and they go to fight their own wiring to survive life. Listen, I know you got a lot to do, but you don't have anxiety because you got a to-do list. That and anxiety. And anxiety when you're not feeling the pressure of the holidays. That's not anxiety. Anxiety is when someone's own makeup starts to hold them prisoner from relationships and experience and requires treatment and intervention in some way. That's anxiety. When somebody's debilitated and can't take another step forward, that is anxiety. So for many of us, we have to realize when we hijack terms, we keep people from healing. So if we commonly use terms in our everyday casual way, so for us, we have to create space in our mind for what mental challenges actually are. You know, the funny thing is, if someone has the flu, you don't think any different of them, but if someone has a mental challenge, we start to think different of them because of what that mental illness is. It's illness. That's all it is. There's a lot of causes for it. Someone's sick in the same way because they got a broken leg, people got broken souls, And when they got broken souls, it manifests in weird ways. And the reality is we have to create space, watch this, and dignity for someone to step into that before they can ever even think about healing. So it's a stigma that's keeping us. We just don't understand it. Here's stigma number two. We think mental illness is only a modern issue. We think it's only a modern issue. Like it's something that's just happened vogue and become vogue recently. I've even heard people say We didn't deal with stuff like that back in my day. This is just a weak generation. Listen, that couldn't be further from the truth. In modern times, we know more about mental health. But the truth is, since the Garden of Eden and sin entered the world, mental illness and mental challenge has been a struggle. It's a part of the human condition. And I can actually prove it to you just for a few moments by showing you some of the heroes of the faith in the Bible struggle with mental challenges at times. Now, I'm not going to diagnose them. That's wrong to do. But I'm going to show you their challenges. Like Jacob, for instance. Jacob was one of the sons of Abraham. He had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel who founded a nation. But what you may not realize is that due to his past and childhood trauma, he dealt with symptoms of PTSD almost his whole life. You say, Craig, how do you know? As a matter of fact, when he's going to meet his brother, whom he's not seen in years in the future, he detaches from his family, starts having sleep issues because he's struggling with memories from his past. He's feeling the effects of trauma. You can also see it in his youngest son, Benjamin. He had lost a son, so when Benjamin was asked to come to Egypt to help find food, he wouldn't let his own son go. As a matter of fact, he had an angry outburst and kept Benjamin from going to get food, even though it meant his own family would die. Why? Because when you have PTSD, illogical decisions are normal. You struggle, you challenge. It's a difficulty. Let me give you another one, Gideon. God says of Gideon, he's a mighty warrior, someone who would lead battles. But you know where we find Gideon for the first time? You know where we see him? At the bottom of a pit having a panic attack. As a matter of fact, because he's had a long-standing struggle with anxiety. Every time God tells him to do something, he self-doubted, gave reasons why he couldn't. He told God to find someone else. Did you know he even asked God multiple times to confirm something God had already said clearly? He kept on asking. God, confirm it, confirm it, confirm it. He constantly spoke ill of himself, isolated himself from family and friends because he lived with struggle. Another one's King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel chosen by God, but he lived almost his entire life with the struggle of what we now know as bipolar disease. Don't twist my words. I didn't say he's bipolar. I said what he struggled with would be symptomatic of what we call bipolar. He had major highs, mean victories. And then he had homicidal rage. He would blow up in a minute, throw a javelin at his young boy, David, and then he could erect a statue in his honor. But he also had really strong depressive moods, times where he felt guilty comparing himself and even brought him to the point of suicide. Another one you may not recognize, but is actually true, is the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, besides Jesus, Paul is the guy. He's a church-planning, miracle-seeing, scripture-writing hero. If you read Paul's writings, here's what you're going to see. A challenge constantly with depressive states. As a matter of fact, you'll find Paul struggle with isolation, struggle with sleeplessness, hopelessness. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he even says, "...I despaired of life itself." Now, I've heard people interpret that and say he he was suicidal. I'm not going to go that stretch of the attacks. But he despaired of life. He despaired of the the moment, this existential dread. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is authenticity. We get the heroes of faith that are just, we're not just strong emotionally and mentally. No, God says, here's what people look like, even the people I use. And listen, this isn't a modern issue. This is a human issue. Now, here's the third stigma. You ready? We don't approach mental health holistically. Now, this is where the church can speak to the culture we live in. I want to spend a moment on it because whether you recognize it or not, you are a multidimensional being. It means that you're more than just a body, you're more than just a soul, you're more than just a spirit. You're all three of those things at one time. Pastor Chad just taught on this a few weeks ago. We do it in foundation phase. You're biological, you're spiritual, and you're emotional. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, May the God of himself and peace sanctify you completely. Well, what's completely? Including your spirit, soul, and body. Here's what happened. When sin entered the human race, through Adam and Eve's disobedience, all three components of your makeup were broken. Listen to me. Your spirit became dead, your soul, which is mind, will, and emotions, became dysfunctional, and your body became infected by disease. What makes mental health so challenging is that all three of them contribute to the illness. It's biochemistry, behavior, and spiritual all at the same time. You can see it in the fact that most of us, when we go to address mental health issues, we only address it in one way. So we got a multi-dimensional problem that we only come from a singular solution and we don't see progress. For example, following me Church, you'll see people who take medication, but at the exact same time, they don't have good relationships. They scroll Facebook endlessly and Instagram endlessly. They're personally not in a good place, so they, they watch what they're watching with their own eyes. They don't end up taking care of their body, but on the end, one, or they take care of their body, but on the one hand, they're not taking care of their soul. Or you may find somebody who goes to therapy, but they're eating terrible. They have bad hours of sleep, they're taking care of their soul. And, and, but they're not taking care of their body. Then we got people who take appeal, but then they ignore the fact that their spirit needs worship and needs prayer and needs church every Sunday. I came to church every Sunday so- I minister to you in the midst of this brokenness. Come to church every Sunday. here, every single week, not isolating, okay? Why? Because we have a spirit. And guess what? We have also people in the church who only approach it with their spirit, and then they ignore their body and soul. And they, and what those kind of people believe is if I pray enough, and if I read the Bible enough, I'm going to come out on the other side. But what happens is they don't, and then when they don't, they start to doubt they're spiritual enough, and they doubt God is good enough, and they go right back into the cycle of shame. And the stigma of mental health is we have to deal with it holistically. You are multidimensional. And I actually think that inside the church, this is the major issue for a lot of people. We got believers who feel like it lacks faith to step in and take care of their body or go to a doctor or take care of their soul. And it's keeping us from finding the health that we need. So I've shared with you my pretty difficult season, but I think, can I tell you the most compounding part of my difficult season, our season, was I was really doing everything right spiritually. I mean, taking steps of faith and I was just not getting better. And when you take steps of faith in the midst of your dysfunction and you don't get better, let me tell you what will happen real quickly. You start to wonder, what is going on here? Who is God? What is going on in my life? And I had to stop, thankfully, with the help and address the whole person, not just one part. So I had to start addressing my diet. I had to start addressing what I did in the day, what I had to exercise, rest, rest, I had to sit down with a professional two times a week and pour out how I felt and continued to seek God and let him do a work in my spirit through addressing a multidimensional problem, not just with a singular solution, but with all of I am, God brought me through it, and I was able to look back at it and see now when I'm not bound by it, this is what happened. Listen, y'all, I had a front row seat to see what it felt like for someone to believe. I am going crazy. What's wrong with me? Am I just not spiritual enough? I had a front row seat. I've never had it until this season where hopelessness became my default emotion. And if you're here today and that's what you identify with, if that's what you feel like you're going through, I want to encourage you for a moment. Would you lock in with me? I want to encourage you and tell you, listen to me, God loves you so much. He planned a whole message this Christmas because He sees you and He's called me to stand up here today and say, you are not crazy. I told my wife this week, I just needed one person who had the fire of God and the authority of God to break through all the hall of mirrors and look me in the face and say, I will not be this way forever. If I could have ever gotten that, it would have broken. But in that moment it is so hard to see that it is not a permanent diagnosis. Listen, you are not doomed. You are not irreparably broken. God still has a plan for your life. You are loved. You are cherished by him. I know that at times the enemy tells us that even, and even good people tell us that something's wrong with us. Listen to me. You can still be spiritual and sick. And your illness is not your identity. And your challenge is not your identity. And your character's not bound up in your brain. And your character's not bound up in your biochemistry. You are a son or a daughter of God whom he cherishes and loves and has a purpose for still. Listen, that's the reason Jesus got on the cross. Scripture tells us he wore a crown of thorns on his head. That's no random occurrence. Every detail of Jesus' life was laid out to communicate the victory that we are to inherit he wore a crown on the place of our greatest battle what between our temples why to tell us we don't just achieve salvation we achieve peace and joy and a sound mind that's allowed to come into our lives you have victory in Christ you're going to make it God is for you he's not against you you can come out the other side with peace and joy resident in your heart again your best days are ahead of you no matter the symptom no matter the stigma you're facing because God has you in the palm of of his hands he has you in the palm of his hands and listen to me it's true now I want to give you real quickly I want to end with this three truths that fight those stigmas here's the three truths regardless if you're in a mental health struggle or not today these are truths that you have to anchor into your life here's the first one are you ready number one God is present in your struggle God is present in your struggle. Man, that's hard to believe. That's so hard to believe when you're having a panic attack. It's so difficult to believe when your son is schizophrenic in an episode. It is so hard to believe that God is for you and God is ag- not against you and God is with you. When you're in a deep dark for de- de- depression, but the reason, the reason we question that is because for most of us, that's what our theology is. So if things are going good, God must be present. If things are going go- bad, God must be absent. Part of the life of a believer, regardless if you have a mental health struggle or not, don't get caught in that for a moment. This is something you've got to mature into. You have to get to a place where Scripture and not your struggle defines who God is. You've got to get to a place, no matter what it takes, where the Scripture of God, the revelation of God, the self-disclosure of God determines who God is, not what you think God is, not who you've experienced God to be. And listen, David dealt with his own struggles and mental health, but look what he wrote in Psalm 139, starting verse 7. This is what he said, David, Psalm 139, verse 7 he says "He, where can I go from your spirit or where can I go and flee from your presence if I ascend to the heavens you're there so he says on these highs I find you if I make my bed in Sheol some translations if I go to the belly of hell itself behold you're there if I take up on the wings of dawn if I dwell in the remote parts of the sea even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me What he says if I surely the darkness will overwhelm me some of you come on come on you're here today that's exactly what it feels like I'm in a dark place there's nowhere no way God could be there David says though the light around me it will be like night even darkness watch this is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day look what he says darkness and light are alike to you you know what he's saying he's saying you see me God look at me church According to this, in every therapy session you have gone to, God's been there. In every conversation and prayer you prayed, God has been there. In every hospital admittance, in every OR room, in every challenge, God's been there. Every episode you've ever faced, God has been there. Every second of every day, God is there with you. Now listen, in our hearts, we immediately, here's what here's what happens. We say, well, well Pastor Craig, why am I still struggling? Because what we're saying, if, if God is present, the situation will be solved. No, what you're wrestling with in that moment is, listen to me, understanding how God's power works. The word for God's power is grace. Grace is God giving us an ability to do what? What we cannot do in our own. What we don't understand, church, please don't miss this, is grace is not dispensed the same way in every circumstance. In my study, in my study, God has three ways He gives grace. The first one is God gives grace to fix something that's wrong in us. That's when the healing transformation comes. I mean, just like one minute you're bad, one minute you're good. That's one way grace works. The second way grace works is God does something around you to fix the situation of your relationships. So there's a situation it just works out. Like it could have never worked out beyond human understanding. God worked it out. He took care of us. And we think that's the only way grace works, but there's a third way. You ready? It's when God gives you grace that carries you through. Let me show it to you in 2 Corinthians Uh, verse chapter 12. This is the apostle Paul who struggled with his own depressive states. He said three times, I begged the Lord to take it away. It, there's a lot of debate over it. Some people say Paul had eye issues. Some people say he had a spiritual problem. Some people thought he had uh, chronic back pain. Some, I don't agree with it though. Some say this is his depression. It. He said, take it away, God. He said, ask God to fix it or fix me. But each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So he said, now I'm going to be glad to boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. Listen, listen, Paul loved God. God loved Paul. And yet Paul said, God, give me grace. Particularly, I'd like the first two types of grace, the kind that fixes this and fixes this situation. But God in his wisdom says, no, Paul, I'm not giving you grace like that. I'm giving you grace to carry you through each day. And each day it's going to display in your life my glory. Now listen to me. If the only way for God to relate to us through miracles, then the Bible wouldn't talk about the spirit of long-suffering. There's a reason there's a fruit of long-suffering because there's a grace that carries you through suffering. That means God's grace won't liberate you from all suffering. It won't happen. It won't happen. Hey, and it's not a lesser grace. If you're here today and you say, I'm in a pretty dark place and I've asked God, then I want you to hear me. You've been heard. And not only have you been heard, but you're receiving grace. It was grace that got you up this morning. It was grace that put you in the shower this morning. It was grace that put clothes on your body. It was grace that got you in your car to come here. It's grace that caused you to sit through this, and it's grace that's going to carry you back to your house. It's grace that's going to get you up tomorrow. It's grace that proves that you're still with us. You're still taking steps. He's with you now. Here's the second truth. God works through miracles and medicine. The other day, I saw someone post something online and said, how would you handle this? And it was something simple at their house, but you would just think the Internet's a funny place because... The internet's a place you go and say, I like oranges. And people go, why don't you like watermelons? Why why, hate, why, do you hate bananas? I used to date a guy like that. He liked oranges and he was a sicko. I bet you're a sicko like he was. So I, I, it's like, dear, I just like oranges. So people were given all kinds of opinions. And it reminded me, you know, well-meaning advice hurts our well-being sometimes. And is there any better example than that in oftentimes where the church medicine and miracles get pitted against one another? Listen, we got people who think if you go for medicine, you've given up on Jesus, and if you go for Jesus, you've given up on science. You know what's ironic about that? They come from the same source. You know what omniscience of God means? Omni-scientist. All science. That's the omniscience of God. God does miracles? He does miracles presently. still does them in Scripture. He still opens up blinded eyes. He still dries up cancerous cells. He still heals chronic pain, does He not? which means he can also rewire your chemistry. He can renew your mind So a broken soul. He can remove traumatic memories. He can come in and do in what a therapist could never do in one single moment. That's why he says, stand on his word. But listen, he also works through medicine. One of the characteristics of God is that he's omniscient. It means all knowledge comes from God. So guess what? Since all knowledge comes from him and he was here before we were, that means any knowledge we have comes from him. Let me say it this way. The most brilliant minds you can think of got their brilliance from his brilliance. Including the medical community. And sometimes God displays his power in a prescription. Not just, not just today, back in Hezekiah's day. There was a king in the Bible named Hezekiah. He was king of Judah, probably the best king. At age 39, he comes down with a skin lesion, he gets an infection, and he's gonna die. He's mortally dying. The Lord sends a prophet to him, but guess what? He didn't have a miracle, he had a prescription. And you know what the text says? I'm gonna read it for you, Isaiah 38:21. Isaiah said to Hezekiah's servants, don't pray for him. Don't work a miracle. He said, do what? Make an ointment from figs and spread it all over the boil and Hezekiah will recover. Listen, we know now there's a makeup with figs and other ingredients can be used on certain lesions to bring healing. God did a miracle, not through a miracle. He did a miracle through medicine. I love the way pastor, theologian, really Christian leader, one of the most influential authors of all time. His name is Louis Smeads. He talks about his own bout with depression. Team, you can come. He openly wrestles with it. Now, don't miss this. This is what he said. I'm going to read to you. I must be honest and tell you that God comes to me each morning and offers me a 20 milligram capsule of Prozac. God comes to me and clears the garbage that accumulates in the canals of my brain overnight and gives me a chance to get a fresh morning start. I swallow every capsule of Prozac, not thinking I'm at a distance from God, but with gratitude to God. I used to think think that taking Prozac would be a sign of weak faith in God. But what if Prozac might not be a substitute for God, but God's gift? But listen, that therapy that's helping, that's God helping. That prescription that's helping, that's God helping. That time with friends, that's God working. Because every good and perfect gift comes from your Father above. Miracles and medicine. Here's the last one. God's calling on your life has not been lost. I think this is the real struggle, y'all. I think some symptoms are difficult. But what gets mixed into all the symptoms comes shame. Mamas, look at me. Shame comes when it's a mama saying, man, I should be stronger for my kids. Why am I going crazy right now mentally? You know, when shame comes, when daddy gets attacked and dad says, man, I'm supposed to be the provider. How can I I experience something so debilitating? You know, when shame comes, a supervisor says, I'm supposed to have it together and I feel like I'm coming apart. Shame comes when a Christian says, I'm supposed to have Jesus in me and I'm struggling to get out of bed today. See, shame doesn't just want to be present in your life. It wants to start predicting your future. And there's only two ways to deal with the shame. You have to Hold up its claim against the God's word, and you've got to call it for what it is—call it a bluff—and say you're a liar. Shame. Look at Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts of God, this is what he said: and calling of God are irrevocable. He does not withdraw what he's given, nor does he change his mind about those he gives his grace to. He called. I love when translation says the gift of God comes under full warranty. You know what that means? God bought a warranty because the only reason you buy a warranty is because you know something's going to break. God knows you're going to break. God already knows you're just a glorified dirt ball. He already knows you're going to think you're crazy. He already knows some days you're not going to be get, get out of bed. He knows some days you're not going to know you're left from your right and He put a full warranty on, on buying you. He put a full warranty saying, listen to me, God knows, he, he knows we can't carry it. He knows we can't make it happen. He says, I'm going to need a warranty for that Craig, but I'm telling you, I'm not giving up on him. I still got a call. There's still a gifting on his life. He's under warranty. And what they go through, in addition to that, all you have to do is just take what shame says and go, you know what? This can't be true because there's no such thing as called and not called. There's no such thing as perfect and imperfect. He said, everything was going great. Notice this text. God will not revoke his calling. He will not. Revoke his calling. Years ago, my middle child was just really small, Marley. We were having a great day together. She's just coloring with her crayons. This is before colored pencils. And we weren't we were living in our first house here, and she just starts screaming bloody murder. And you know, I dad trying to comfort her, and I'm looking down finally to see why she's screaming, and she's screaming because she had pressed too hard with her color crayon, and and, and the crayon had broken. And I guess the thought of not being able to finish her masterpiece just ended her life. She's crying, full-throated. And here I am looking for another color, trying to go around. I'm trying to talk her off the edge, but I can't. She's getting louder and louder. I'm getting more unnerved. And then I had this brilliant idea. I picked up the crayon, and I pulled back the broken pieces, beyond the broken pieces, the paper that exposed more of it. And I put it in her hand, and I grabbed her hand and put it on the deal. And then I just started moving it on the sheet. And I said, darling, listen, broken broken crayons still color. And all of a sudden, it washed over me. Wow. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, yes, broken crayons still color. And broken people still have a calling. We're all broken. We're just broken in different ways. And we serve a God who's asking us this morning, Would you put your brokenness into his willing hand? Is Jesus worth following? You bet your bottom dollar. He'll cut away the images, the shame, the stigma, the struggle. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.